All right, guys, welcome to Salt City. For the last several weeks, we've been dusting off our Old Testaments and looking at the book of Genesis. And something that is surprising when you dive into the Old Testament is that the Old Testament isn't filled with religious heroes. The Old Testament is filled with scrappers. And we're running into one of those scrappers this morning named Jacob, who literally wrestled with God. And I don't know about you, but wrestling has never been an appealing sport to me. And that has never been more clear to me than when I was at a wrestling meet when I was in eighth grade. There was a seventh grader named Billy who was wrestling an exhibition match against another seventh grader, a girl named Nichelle. And at that time... Girls couldn't wrestle boys in real matches, so they were wrestling an exhibition match. And you knew this wasn't going to go well for Billy. (laughs) Billy had a big head and a small frame. And Nichelle, the girl that he was wrestling, was a gymnast. She was about five inches shorter and ripped. (laughs) And so I remember Billy walking out on the match, and his dad yelled, Get her, Billy! And then... Nichelle pinned Billy in five seconds in front of a fourth of our school. And none of us prepubescent middle school boys laughed too hard because we knew that if we wrestled Nichelle, we also would have gotten pinned in less than five seconds. So it hit a little too close to home. And there's a reason that many of us don't want to have a relationship with God that could be characterized as wrestling. And that's because we all know that if we wrestle with God, we will lose. But what we're actually going to see in this text is that losing would be the best thing that could ever happen to us. God's blessing is for those willing to go to the mat with him. And so I want to invite you into a relationship with God that is characterized actually by fighting with him. So we're going to see, first of all, why we need God's blessing. So we're looking at Genesis 32, verses 3 through 8, and we're continuing to look at the life of Jacob. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, And he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Now this confrontation between Jacob and Esau has been a long time coming. 
there was a sibling rivalry between these two men. In fact, from the time that they were in the womb. You remember that they were twins, and Esau was born first, and quickly after Esau came out, his brother Jacob was holding him by the ankle, as if to say, I'm going to take the blessing from you. And so Jacob's name literally meant cheater or grasper, and he lived up to that name, specifically in this relationship with Esau. You see, their dad Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob. And that's because Esau was a manly man. You know the type. He's a hairy guy, big, strong guy, loved to hunt. And he made his dad delicious food. And so his dad doted on Esau and loved Esau. And the text says that Jacob, in contrast, was a smooth man. In other words, not a hairy man, kind of a skinny looking dude, kind of like what I see when I look in the mirror. And kind of a mama's boy. He wasn't a guy who was going to gain his father's approval. And so Jacob needed his dad's approval. Because he needed his dad's approval, he simultaneously hated his brother Esau and idolized his brother Esau. He wanted to be Esau. And so he pretended to be Esau. He put some animal skins on his arms. He made some soup with his mom's help. He went into his dad and he stole the blessing that was meant for his brother. And his brother got furious and Jacob ran. And he went and he lived with his uncle Laban for 20 years. And now after 20 years, time has not healed all wounds. Jacob is coming face to face with Esau. And so what Jacob does in this scene is he takes all of the emblems of his success and he pushes them in front of Esau. He says, look, I've been successful. Look at my donkeys. Look at my sheep. Look at my flocks. Look at my herds. Look, I've been a success. I've done well. Why is he doing that? He desperately wants Esau's approval. He wants his favor. And what does Esau do? He takes his 400 men and pushes them in front of Jacob as if to say, don't mess with me, dude. And Jacob gets scared. And so what happens is, these last 20 years, Jacob has worked and worked and worked, blood, sweat, and tears to prove himself to his brother, to get his dad's blessing, to finally feel like he's okay. And he comes to the critical moment where he faces his brother and he absolutely crumbles. He falls apart. And what we learn from this story is no matter how much you scrap, no matter how much you cheat, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you perform to get the approval of the people around you, it will never be enough. You'll crumble. And that's because you were not made to get your need 
for blessing and approval and favor from the people in your life, you were meant to get the blessing and the approval and the favor that you long from God himself. It's only when God looks at you and says that you're okay and you hear him in the core of your being that you'll actually know that you're okay. And Jacob finds out in a very difficult way that it's not enough. And he's absolutely undone. I remember this point was nailed home for me one time when I was in college. A player for the Indianapolis Colts came and spoke to our student ministry right after the Colts had won the Super Bowl. And he described the scene after they won the Super Bowl, the confetti and the cheering and all that. And then they went back into the locker room and one of the players got up and in the locker room said, let's do it again next year. And he sat in the locker room looking at the other guys and he said, this is ridiculous. We have worked our entire lives from peewee football all the way up through college, through the professional ranks to win the Super Bowl and we realized it wasn't enough five minutes after we walked off the field. And he made this statement. He said, human institutions are meant to create cravings for God. You see, all your relationships, all the people that you're longing to just tell you that you're okay, are meant by God to be in your life as a constant reminder that they will never be enough. So if you're tired, if you're feeling weary, if you're feeling weak, if you're feeling afraid, this message is for you. Because we see next how we receive God's blessing. We're tired. We haven't been able to get the blessing we want from the approval of the people around us. We see how we are to receive God's blessing. Genesis 32, starting with verse 22. Let's pick up the story. It gets weird. The same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So here's what happens here. Jacob takes everything that is a symbol of his performance. Everything blessable about his life. And he takes it and he puts it on one side of the river. As if to say, all of these things are no good to me in getting God's approval. And he goes to the other side of the river and he is absolutely alone in the presence of God. And as he's alone in the presence of God, 
a man shows up. And we find out later that that man is God in the flesh. And Jacob sees the man and he wrestles with him. Okay? It's a weird scene. At one point, Jacob has God in a headlock and he won't let him go. And God's like trying to tap out. And he's like, I will not let you go until you bless me. And we learn something here about the type of relationship that God wants to have with us. You see, all of us fall into one of two camps, I think. One of the camps is we're people who are just dwelling on our weakness. I'm just a sinner, just a broken person. No one's approval has been able to satisfy me. We're walking around in self-pity, but with no effort in our relationship with God to establish a good relationship with him. And then there's some of us who are leaning on our strengths. We're not desperate. We're strong. I don't need you, God. We're fighting, but we're not fighting with God. We're fighting to get money. We're fighting for relationships. We're fighting to be better, fighting to be more beautiful, more athletic, more successful. But we're fighting for all the wrong things. And here's what happens to Jacob. He gets so desperate for the blessing, the approval, and the favor with God that he's actually willing to go to the mat with him. Are you tired of just praying dear Jesus prayers? Are you tired of this type of relationship with God that you have that's like, dear Jesus, thank you for this food. I ask that you would bless my day. Thank you. Amen. This type of relationship with God where you sort of open the Bible, you read a few verses uh, like an incantation over your life, and you just kind of, God, I just ask that you would help me to be a good employee at work today. Here's the type of relationship that God is calling you to in this passage. He wants you to fight. Fight. Tell him what you think. Tell him what you feel. Tell him how mad you are at Esau. Tell him how you wanted to be that person, not the person that you are. Give him your heart. Tell him what you really Think, and what you'll learn is that God has big, broad shoulders, and he can take it. He can actually handle the real you. You know, I started to learn this when I was in college. I was lonely, and I was desperate. College wasn't all that it was cracked up to be for me. I didn't have as many friends as I wanted to, and even the friends that I had, I didn't feel like they were real friends. And I just felt like, man, I, I just need something else in my life. And I realized that that something else was, it was right under my nose. It was the, the God of my parents, the God that I've learned about my whole life. And I stopped praying these dear Jesus prayers, and I began to go to this place on the campus where I attended called the North Quad. It's sort of in the middle of the campus, all these trees. And I would go there at night, and I would just scrap with God. I was done. I just started yelling at him. And occasionally, this is kind of embarrassing, I would even just like kick trees 
Like if you walked by, you would have think I was in a drunken rage. But no, I was just mad at God. Why did you make me this way? Why did you put me in this family? Why did you do this to me? And that's what Jacob's doing here. Finally, he's wrestling with God. And here's what's true. Jacob had thought he had been wrestling with Esau his entire life. But what he realized in this moment is that the person that he was really mad at was God. Because God made his brother stronger. God made his brother come out first. God's put you in the circumstances that he's put you in. God made you who he's made you to be, all your strengths and all your weaknesses. And the person that you're really mad with is not your roommate or your spouse, it's God. And you gotta tell him. You gotta engage him. You gotta wrestle with him. But it's not just about how we receive the blessing. This passage is also about how God gives the blessing. There's two sides to this wrestling match. There's, there's Jacob telling him what he really thinks, and then there's God giving it to him. We see how God gives his blessing. Genesis 32, we're going to reread a couple verses, then add a couple in the end, starting with verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Okay, so we have sort of an odd thing happening here, if you think about it. From God's perspective, why is he wrestling with a man? Why would God become this vulnerable and wrestle with a man? This is the same God who we saw just a few chapters earlier in Genesis, who's so powerful that he spoke and the universe was created, and now he's in the flesh and he's wrestling with a man. Why is he doing that? And at times, you even see him losing. It's like he can't win. Jacob's got him in a headlock. It's like God can't get out. It's certainly not that God couldn't easily win the match. But here's what we see. God is a good dad. You know, little boys, I've got two of them, they love to wrestle. Nothing makes a little boy feel more connected to his dad than to wrestle with him. And so this week, as part of my sermon prep, I wrestled my four-year-old son, Gabe. We're wrestling, and here's what I realize about the dynamics of a wrestling match that I have with Gabe. He wants two things in that wrestling match. One, he wants moments where he feels like he's winning. So sometimes I let him like stand up on the fireplace and jump off onto my stomach, and I'm like, oh! And then I'll let him run across the room and push me over onto the ground. And he feels like he's winning. But what he also wants in the wrestling match is he 
wants moments where he feels my strength. So in other words, he wants moments like where I pick him up, like put him over my head and like suplex him onto the couch, right? Because he wants to feel like he's winning, but he also wants to know that I'm stronger than him. And in that whole interplay, what he feels is he feels connected to me and he feels so loved by me. And so that's part of what God's doing here. But there's something even deeper that God's doing here than connecting with Jacob. He's taking away the very thing that Jacob is relying on to get his blessing. See, there's this moment where God shows his strength. He touches Jacob's hip socket and he puts it out of joint. And that might not seem significant to you, but here's what's going on. The hip socket in this ancient culture represented, yes, that was perfect, a guy's manhood, okay? So it was really close to the loins, the seat of his procreation, and it was really close to where a man's sword would hang. So here's what happens. God strikes Jacob at his manhood. He takes away part of his manhood. You see, the struggle, the core struggle in Jacob's life has been to be more manly than his brother Esau. And what God does is make him less manly. So, when he goes to face Esau and to reconcile the relationship with him, he's not only not running, he's not only not hairy, he's not only not as strong, now he's limping. He looks like a total wuss. And here's the reality. It's the best thing that could have ever happened to Jacob. Because he felt like his whole life that he wasn't strong enough. That if he could just be a little stronger, if he could just achieve a little bit more, if he could just do a little bit more, if he could just make more money, if he could just have more kids, if he could just achieve a little bit more, then he would finally get the blessing that he wanted. And the problem was not that he was not strong enough. The problem his entire life was that he was not weak enough. He wasn't desperate enough. He wasn't yet ready to cast himself fully on God. And so he was crumbling. And now, finally, he has become weak enough that he can receive a blessing from God. So what happened in his life? The last thing we see in the passage is what happens when we have God's blessing. when we finally give up pursuing our own identities through our performance and we finally rest in him. This is what happens. Genesis 35, 9 through 15. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. 
So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay, so between chapters 32 and 35, here's what happens. Jacob confronts his greatest fear after God has blessed him. He faces up to Esau. And to his utter astonishment, the relationship is reconciled after 20 years of deep brokenness. They embrace each other. And we think, oh, Jacob is a changed man. He's different because of God's blessing. And then the very next chapter, we see his daughter, Dinah, gets raped. And Jacob does nothing. He passively stands by. He does absolutely nothing to defend her or to help her in her moment of greatest desperation. So what we continue to see in Jacob is passivity, weakness, and also tremendous strengths. We see a mix like we see in every single human being. But here's the fundamental change that is taking place at the core of his being is that he gets a new name. So I told you, Jacob, his name means cheater. Jacob has been operating with this identity that I am a sinner. I am messed up. I am broken. I am weak. I am not manly. And the only way that I can achieve anything in life is by scrapping and cheating. And God changes his name to Israel, which means wrestles with God. You see, his identity gets dislodged from his performance and from his sin and from his past and his identity is placed squarely in being a child of God. Here's what you need. You need to wrestle with God until he blesses you. Until you can hear him say, you are not identified with your sin. You are not identified with your brokenness. You're with me. You're my child. And I love you just because I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to give the world to you. You see what God promises to Jacob. He promises everything he's been striving to get through his own efforts. And God says, because you're my child, I'm just going to give it to you. Just like I gave it to Abraham and just like I gave it to Isaac, I'm going to give it to you. So what we see in this passage as a whole is we see that when everything that we are grasping onto for our identity and for our worth is taken away from us, that paradoxically, it's actually the best thing that could ever happen to us because we are left alone with God. And if you have God and you have nothing else, you have all that you need. 
Let me read a story to finish that illustrates this. It's going to be kind of long, okay? Maybe the longest story I've ever read at Salt City. It's about five minutes long. But I want to read it to you because I think it presses home what it looks like in life when all you have is Jesus. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. And it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisor would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been here bedridden, blind, nearly deaf and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, thank you, it's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know, I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients. I found one and stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up on a small farm that she managed with her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm until 1950 when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches. And then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the stench was often overpowering, Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks. And I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days, I would read to her from the Bible, and often, when I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory word for word. On other days, I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, And she would know all the words of the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain, except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper to write down the things that she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in 10 directions at once with all of the things that I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it's day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lay here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. 
I sat there and I thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kinds that's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn, Jesus is all the world to me, life, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I'm sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I'm sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in the bed, unable to move, unable to see, and unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had incredible power. Do you see? Those things that you're leaning on to give you your identity, those things are the things that are keeping you from true joy. If you have Jesus and you have nothing else, you have everything that you need, which means that the most loving thing sometimes that God can do in your life is to take away what is most precious to you that is not him. Has he taken something from you now? Are you feeling the pain of it? Could it be that he loves you to the moon and back and he has your best in mind and he's shown it to you at the cross and Jesus has demonstrated God's love for you by taking your sin and so you can trust him, wrestle with him, fight with him, go to him and say, bless me and he will give you a name, a new name his own son or daughter. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are here with us. And you're here with us not to condemn us. You didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but in the order that the world might be saved through you. We need this blessing. So many of us are grasping for the blessing in so many different places, for favor, for approval, and we're just tired. Give us some fight this week. Would we fight? Would we scrap? Would we wrestle with you? And God, would you in your grace win? Would you defeat us? And if necessary, God, would you take away what is most precious to us so that we can actually find what is most valuable in you. In Jesus' name.